Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut as we gather around the VR bonfire of tech news. Today, we cover new features in Juniper Appstra, new routers from Arista, Google's Project Loon rising from the ashes, and more. Sponsored today by Nokia. Nokia's open extensible SR Linux network OS lets you build custom apps to help simplify data center network operations tasks. The SR Linux NetOps Development Kit, or NDK, provides documentation and examples to help you write apps quickly and easily. It supports industry standards, including Yang, gRPC, and GNMI. To find out more, listen to the Packet Pushers Tech Bytes episode we recorded with Nokia, published on September 6th, and go to learn.srlinux.dev. And then stick around for a Tech Bytes conversation with Aruba. We're talking about Wi-Fi 6E and the automated frequency coordination database it helps coordinate the use of the net, that new 6 gigahertz spectrum between licensed and unlicensed users. And we'll hear about how Aruba participated in the first public demo of this database. All right, let's dive into some news. First, Juniper Networks has announced Appstra Freeform. This provides new capabilities in its Appstra data center automation and intent-based networking platform. And bear with me while I explain a few things here. Freeform lets companies run Appstra across more topologies and supports more protocols than before. Prior to this release, if you were going to use Appstra, you had to follow some stringent data center reference designs, which were basically limited to leaf spine fabric uh, designs using BGP, EVPN, and VXLAN. With Freeform, companies can now use topologies including hub and spoke, full mesh, ring, and others, and protocols including OSPF, ISIS, Rift, and more. Yeah, this is uh, a sign of maturity, I think, when... It's it's a bit odd, but I was just thinking like when Appstra first started out, it started out with a very fixed approach to enable its intent-based model to operate. Yeah. And uh, its funding model, Appstra didn't have access to unlimited amounts of capital and its founding uh, founding members was a little bit unusual as to who was founding and capitalizing the business. So it didn't have the typical, you know, throw money overboard as fast as possible type approach to scaling up. It really focused on a different sort of a model. But I also like the Appstra approach because it removed customer choices and that <laughs> simplification makes the sales process less co costly and less complex. It's not kind the customer's either in or out. Does that mean, you know what I'm saying? It absolutely does. If you were not going yeah. to follow the, the design specs that Appstra required, then you didn't buy Appstra and it was pretty simple. That's right. Yeah. And, but also at that time, the idea of a clove fabric in the data center, you know, the leaf spine mm -hmm. thing using EVPN and then automating that was also something new. So to that extent, if customers were talking at that point in time, it wasn't necessarily, you know, most customers had a legacy tree-based, you know, spanning tree, VLAN, you know, type of architecture. L3 mm -hmm. routing was kind of like... There were some, but not a whole lot, you know, that sort of thing. But mostly it was all spanning tree and bridged sort of an approach, um, VLAN trunking all around the place. Uh, and so it made sense. Like it, it, people were pretty much looking to throw that sort of thing out and move to something more modern. So it made sense. But I think as time's gone by, we're now at the stage where customers have built their own EVPN networks, or many customers have built EVPN networks. And as you pointed out in the protocols, they're supporting things like not just OSPF or BGP for the EVPN, they're also supporting ISIS and Rift, mm -hmm. which there are, you know, scaled out customers who want that, especially in the telco space where you're doing 5G at the edge. So, um, you know, Juniper's effectively saying is, yeah, we we know that our customers want more flexibility and, and flee, you know, moving into that. And I think that's, I think that's interesting because one of the criticisms we hear a lot about ACI, Cisco ACI, is that it's, an enterprise data center solution that requires very specific high-end expensive Cisco hardware right. and a very specific limited design. You, you either do this or you don't play at all. And ACI goes on top. Mm -hmm. Now, 
So if you're putting Appster up against Cisco ACI, ACI looks like something from, you know, the 1995s. You have to buy our custom microcomputer with our custom software and our custom <laughs> hardware. It looks very, you know, not disaggregated, not white box, not open. You know, once, you're, once you've got ACI on, theory on top of ACI is open, except nobody's building anything on top of ACI because it's not not the way the market seems to be moving. So I actually think Juniper's got the resources here and it's got customers and that flexibility makes sense to where the market is now and where the market's moving to, right? Yeah, I think obviously Juniper realized that by having this uh, design requirement up front, it was going to limit the number of customers it could reach. So it needed to find a way to bring Appstra and intent-based networking to other topologies and other protocols. And it has done this, but um, I should uh, note that there are some caveats to this. Um, if you are going to use Freeform, um, Appster itself with the strict reference designs is a multi-vendor system. You can use NOSes from Juniper, from Arista, from Cisco, Sonic, others. Um, with Freeform, if you're using the Freeform model, it only runs on Junos right now. So it's not a multi-vendor mm. solution uh, in the Freeform format. Uh, second, um, when you used, I, I want to call it Appster Classic, I guess, uh, with their design, the software would essentially go out and touch all of the network devices and configure them for you. Freeform does not do that. Customers themselves have to create and validate the device profiles and bring them into the Appster mm -hmm. software using some topology and reference designs. And that makes sense, I think, because they're at this point, Appster can't go out and, you know, Juniper doesn't can't go out and suck in all the configurations and then right. delta to the final state. That's, you know, you, that's always going to be a professional set because people can do weird things when they're using the CLI. Like there's all sorts of corner conditions in there that you probably just can't, pro, you know, cover right. for. Right, which is why Appster had that initial do it our way at the outset because they wanted to eliminate all those weird use cases. And now that they're trying to incorporate those use cases, they're essentially like, all right, hmm. you bring in the configurations you have into our system and then we'll go from there as opposed to us being automatically doing it for you, which means if you are using Freeform, it's going to be more work for the customer upfront uh, to get those device configurations and the topology into the Appster platform. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, we did a, an interview, a TechBite interview with Juniper, I'm thinking six months ago now, where they were talking about how they were actually able to take an existing ACI deployment and migrate it to Appstra in a weekend. Mm -hmm. So they were able to rip the configs out and then port them into Appstra. And then on Monday morning, it was all switched over and ACI had been turned off. Um, so that's a brownfield over the top. So that's the sort, and that was a professional services engagement, but apparently they'd been writing tools that had automated some of that to make sure it was, you know, and then now they're starting, maybe this is that, maybe this is an extension of that process. Potentially, I, I watched a bunch of Tech Field Day videos uh, about Appster Freeform, and they do occasionally reference maybe you want to have a services engagement uh, if you were mm. going outside sort of their stringent reference design. So I think that may be yeah. part of it because there is upfront work required for Freeform. Now, what I'm saying is they've been telegraphing this for a while. But they have, yes. Yeah, it's not yeah. It's not a surprise. I mean, I, I for a long time, my critique of Appster was that it was basically you can have any color you want as long as it's black, and they are now you know mm. uh, getting a little looser, which is a good thing to see. Do you know that wasn't Henry Ford that said that? I always thought it was. It wasn't? Yeah. No. Apparently, when you go and look it up, it's actually somebody in, um, in England. I'll go and look up the reference and see if I can put it out there. But I found out this <laughs> week, I, I can't remember who it actually was, but it was somebody in, in the UK or in Great Britain at the time who was making something. And um, he went to the government and said, no, uh, trains it was. That's right. It was trains and they'll make uh, a particular type of engine. Okay. And they said, well, what color should it be? He said, you can have any color as long as it's black. <laughs> but it wasn't Henry Ford that said that, apparently. There I you go. That. I guess I'm not surprised mm. the British are good at quips. <laughs> 
Well, this is pre-Henry Ford too, so maybe you know <laughs> could be. He stole it. Mm. Yeah, like any good yeah, industrialist, well, this is in the he stole the idea. <laughs> yeah. Still industrialist, so it's close enough. But yeah. you know. All right. Well, we've got plenty of links in the show notes. If you want to go check out Apps for Freeform, we'll move on. Uh, Arista Networks, they've added new routers to their portfolio. Arista is probably best known for data center switching, but the company has been competing in the routing space for several years. Uh, these new routers, they run EOS, uh, which is Arista's, uh, the same network OS as Arista switches, and they're managed by Cloud Vision. The routers are targeting enterprises, cloud providers, and telcos. <laughs> Hardware, oh, <laughs> chassis, line cards, uh, 400 gig ports, uh, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, 7.2 terabits of zero folding <laughs> performance in a single shot. There's all a horror, you know, there's all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, they're talking uh, fixed and modular systems from 7.2 terabits per second to 460 terabits per second, which is, of course, their chassis. You can have those 16 slot uh, chassis with, you know several bucketfuls of power supplies to feed power into all of those <laughs> units. But that's what they're talking. And this uh, this is not for normal people. This is a very much, I thought, for cloud. Is that what you, you did a briefing with them? I thought it was very much, a, you know, for the cloud scale, the off-prem clouds, mega clouds at clouds at scale. They're the companies looking at this. I mean, yeah, Arista definitely does a lot of work with the, the cloud folks, but they have, uh, they're also talking about, you know, if you're a large enterprise and you're trying to do data center interconnect, the, they are positioning routers for you as well. So they're rolling out mm -hmm. 26 routers in, in these two new series. So I think there's essentially saying routers for anyone. <laughs> well, at the end of the day, a switch router, you know, it, what has it been, 20 years since we, st we stopped arguing over whether, what was a router and what was a switch when, <laughs> when it became pretty clear the argument was moot. Uh, there is, uh, in Arista's world, and for some routers, it used to be that a router could be defined by the fact it supported multiple file layers. But today, it's really just about um, how many queues you support your ability in the forwarding plane. So how the packets get handled, the number of manipulations or, or transformations you can perform on the packet as it goes through. So do you have the capability to manipulate the MPLS header at multiple stages through the processing? Maybe you want to tag it. And also related to the uh, crypto. Now they talked about TunnelSec here, Drew, because you know we know how Rista likes to trademark something and give it a name, you know, like- Right, so uh, they're, they're touting- <laughs> Right, yes, spline. I still don't know what a spline, spline is. Anyway, trademark <laughs> instead of spine. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, so they're rolling out something they're calling TunnelSec. It's providing line rate encryption on these new routers, and it supports MacSec, IPSec, and VXLANSec encryption options uh, for whatever your encryption use case might be. Yeah, this looks to me like TunnelSec is sort of like a way of the code inside the router probably just runs all of the encryption into the same code. So whether it's MacSec, IPSec, or VXLANSec, it's all part of the same code base so that you're not configuring three different things right. um, and, and converge. It, Is that sound right? Yes, and it, it's uh, hardware accelerated, so it's right on the ASIC, uh, so you don't have to have like an external device handling the crypto elements for you. Yeah, and we talked last week about Broadcom's Trident, for LXC11, I think it was, right. having, you know, putting that encryption not into the ASIC, but in fact into the gearboxes that sit outside it mm -hmm. so that it's actually as close to the interface as possible, which in a chassis is absolutely what you want. You don't want to be doing encryption down in the fabric. You want to be doing it out on the line card so that it scales. And the more line cards you put in, the more encryption processing you get. And you also uh, simplifies a lot of the uh packet handling because once you can decrypt it at the edge you can then classify it tag it before it runs down into the the back fabric into the backbone fabric for for forwarding so there's a whole bunch of advantages in that sense so but encryption has become a big thing people expect it to be encrypted inside the data center 
um, and in a router, whereas inside the data center, we tend to do encryption in the service mesh these days. It's not so much that we do MacSec underneath inside the data center because everything's encrypted over the top. So, But I do think what Arista is doing here is saying we're using merchant silicon chips from a range of vendors. We're going to give you one presentation for this so that you don't actually have to be aware of what's underneath. Right. I believe actually all of these boxes are going to be built on Jericho, but I did ask them about hmm. other uh, ASIC vendors and they said, we, we, we talked to everybody. <laughs> covering all the bases yes. in other words we don't want to talk about merchant silicon where arista yeah well yeah i mean their strategy is based around merchant silicon in that they feel like you know mm. that they can uh do good engineering on their end to get the most out of that merchant silicon so you get that sort of you know cost and performance benefit at the same time you can only do what the silicon does whereas cisco does have control of its silicon one and in theory, can add features to the silicon that it wants to use to differentiate itself. Right. So same thing. Arista's Juniper would make a similar argument about their uh, custom silicon. Yeah. Now. Well, I would point here that they're doing the right way, which is if you're doing it in the software like this and you're saying, I am going to present you a consistent interface to all three types of encryption, and you don't actually have to know what's in the silicon underneath, that that is more satisfying to me mentally. Mm -hmm. I wonder what the physical, <laughs> I wonder what it's like in the real world. There's actually limitations in, inherent <laughs> probably, but yeah. Uh, well, we've got links in the show notes, uh, including to uh, the one of the new series is the 7280R3. Um, we'll have a link to all the details if you want to go check it out. Uh, moving on, Twitter had to shut down a Northern California data center this September due to extreme heat in the region. Twitter said, quote, the unprecedented event resulted in the total shutdown of physical equipment, end quote. Uh, the shutdown of this data center left Twitter in a non-redundant state while the company worked to bring equipment back online. Yeah, I think we've been raising the issue of climate change a few times and highlighting that two things are actually happening here. One is that increased temperatures present a risk to data centers that need to do cooling. Mm -hmm. And the second one is that overheating also leads to power shortages as different parts of the market are then draw down on the power supply. So in this case, I think it's actually a combination of both. The high temperature and the power grid problems happened at the same time, yep. which is exactly what we were presaging as environment change. And of course, this has got into the news because it's normally a redundant data set of being down is a bit like, eh, that's what it's for, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But uh, Twitter is Twitter's current situation, it's being musked. You know, Elon Musk said he was going to buy it. Now he wants to get out of it because he's oh, a no. billionaire. He's throwing it. He's oh, now a verb. <laughs> Elon yeah, that's Musk right. is now so a verb. <laughs> he's been musked. Twitter's being musked. And they're being so, yeah, musked I think it's I think it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think the reason this did come to light is that because uh, also of the uh, the whistleblowing report uh, from uh, Peter Zetko, uh, Zipko, uh, a.k.a. Mudge, uh, called out some, you know, frankly shocking security and operational lapses at Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. And so this sort of just tied neatly into that narrative of uh, an entire data center went down. Because <laughs> it was well, they're already hot. on the headline. That's right. It's the headlines. I, I actually looked at the the testimony that he gave to Parliament, mm -hmm. uh, that Peter Zetko gave to, Parliament, to Congress. Congress. Yeah. And I also went like, yeah, sounds about right. Doesn't no no surprises there. Um, certainly in my real world experience, uh, if you want a, a cross reference, go and have a look at Uber this week. Uh -huh. uh, last night, they, at time of recording, this is Friday, but Uber got owned by a hacker, and not only they own everything: AWS account, Google account, uh, Azure accounts, got access to all of the dashboards, everything. Yeah, 
left, right, down, and up. You can actually, they posted screenshots of the AWS dashboard showing how much money their current balance is with right. AWS. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. Tell me again how secure, you know, Twitter is because it's not, to me, it's like, yes, it's not great. But if you go and talk to any enterprise, if, if you were actually exposed like that with somebody who's a whiny security professional, you didn't do what I said. That's pretty much what would happen. I, I agree that if you peeled back uh, the covers on most enterprise organizations and large tech companies, you would find the similar mm. shocking security and operational lapses. It's it's not just a Twitter thing. It's an industry problem. Yeah. yeah I, I think, you know, everything that, that uh, Mr. Zatko is saying is probably absolutely correct. It should be done this way. It should be done that way. But that's not the real world that we live in. The real world that we live in is one where, you know, good enough is good enough. And the goal is to make is to close the gap incrementally over time. And he lost faith with the executives because he ran around peddling that old security line of you have to do all of these things, and if you don't, the world's going to end. And the world didn't end. It's working. Do you know what I mean? Like Uber's not going to go out of business just because their entire infrastructure was completely pwned. You know, they they'll still be in business next week. Right. They'll get their turn in the barrel for a few days, and then everybody will move on. Exactly. So, you know, he is a well-respected member of the security community, well-known for, you know, being a, a serious technologist and, you know, a reasonably wise practitioner. But in this case, he comes off like everything that you don't like about security professionals. Another thing I also note in this same issue, uh, with the data center going down, if you're in a conversation with executives about, you know, climate change and data centers, use the Twitter outage to bring it to their attention and, and say, like, this is a real issue here. So it's not something that you made up because you have liberal namby-pamby environmental issues. It's just a real issue. Heat and power. If you have heat, people use power to cool. If you don't, that's uh, two things happening at once. When when the heat spikes environmentally, you lose power as well. So um, yeah, throw this at them. It, it's it's heat, it's heat waves, it's wildfires, it's droughts, it's floods, extreme weather events. They all have repercussions on mm. infrastructure, on your redundancy, on your availability, and on your employees. So I, I yeah. do think climate change is going to have to factor into, you know, your IT decision making at some point. Yeah. And let me give you another example. Um, in China yesterday, a China telecom high-rise building, it's 650 feet tall, completely burned down in 20 minutes. Wow. Uh, reports of several hundred people being killed, the number of victims, which is terribly sad. Yeah. The the current reports are that there was 35 tons of fuel stored in there to react as a backup, and um, yeah, uh, and the risk of running, you know, an article which is if it bleeds, it leads sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It sounds like they build a high rise building, put a data center in it, and then put 35 tons of fuel in it down the bottom somewhere. Oh, and when the building caught on fire, um, it's terrible. The the YouTube's are horrifying. Um, so personal safety. If you're working in a building that's got 35 tons of fuel in the bottom, maybe you want to uh, not work there. So, yeah, but terrible. There's, these are the sorts of things that happen, you know. Did they build the building and, and put it back up in because of environmental issues? Because they needed to run, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, so very serious questions need to be answered there, and that is a terrible tragedy. Mm -hmm. Uh, moving on, uh, taking a break to tell you about our sponsor, Nokia, and it's SR Linux Network OS. As an open, extensible network OS, you can write custom apps using the SR Linux NetOps Development Kit, or NDK. The NDK provides documentation and examples for how you can quickly build apps into the OS. It supports Yang for common data models. 
uses the industry standard gRPC for app-to-app -app communication and GNMI for configuring Linux devices. Even better, NDK comes with built-in lifecycle manager so you can help manage the custom apps you're developing. Nokia customers are taking advantage of SR Linux capabilities to build custom apps that solve real problems. For example, a global web scaler built apps that get essential telemetry, monitor deviations in configuration, and speed device commissioning with an app that checks for correct cabling against a master database when a new switch is brought up. You can learn more about how Nokia SR Linux and the NetOps Development Kit can help you build your own networking apps by listening to the Packet Pressures Tech Bytes episode that we published on September 6th with Nokia. You can also go to learn.srlinux.dev. That's learn.srlinux.dev. And we thank Nokia for being a sponsor. All right, back to the news. There's a startup called Vigo, and they're pitching an end-user experience service to ISPs to help service providers offer better tech support to customers. The Vigo service called Vigo Active includes an agent that's on users' home routers. It monitors performance of applications and devices connected to the home network. And then there's a SaaS-based dashboard for ISPs to get performance data and analytics to help better answer calls when a customer comes in and says, my internet isn't working. You know, Drew, I want to like this because anything that's visibility and observability and ha and helps you measure end user experience, I'm all for that. But I just got to say that this, does this feel like another, when the last time I've seen this, three years ago, Thousand Eyes was doing something in this space and three years before that it was something else. I've seen this multiple times over the last 25 years and we're still seeing new markets come to, you know, new solutions come to market. I, I'm not entirely convinced here. Now you you pick this out. Is there something here that particularly attracted you? Well, so we've talked about products like this, uh, you know, AppNeta, Catchpoint and others um, have these end user monitoring capabilities. And it's essentially meant for enterprises, enterprise IT shops to support mm. you know, their new home workers. So it's exactly the same idea. You monitor performance. You can see things like Wi-Fi signal strength. You can see, um, you measure the, 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 um, performance of a link. You can find out about, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the delay, uh, on an application, uh, but it's targeted for ISPs uh, as opposed to targeting enterprises. And I think that's an interesting twist on this. So it's the same kind mm. of technology, but the twist is ISPs. Uh, my <laughs> my cynical take <laughs> is that, you know, I, I don't think ISPs actually care about their customers to want this, but maybe there's a market there. <laughs> that's exactly my thinking. Like uh, my thinking is a little bit more cynical even than that. I, I've got concerns about like the idea of putting an agent into consumer homes from an ISP's point of view is a good idea. You think about it and you go like, well, yeah, that's obvious. But over the years, I've seen many attempts to put agents into consumer or retail environments. And let's just say it's notoriously difficult to have a workable, reliable agent in that situation. Mm -hmm. What does that agent look like? What does it run on your Netgear router? Does it run on your TP-Link? Yep. Do you put it on someone's computer? Oh, my God. No, the, the idea <laughs> like, is to run it on the router, yes. So, yes, I, there yeah, are issues okay. around performance of the router itself. And so they've had to yeah. write their software very carefully not to just eat all the, you know, but, uh, you know, the, the you're talking about a router that costs 20 bucks, right. you know, that sells in the tens of thousands of units and is supplied for free when you sign up with your, <laughs> like, I like the idea, like, like, you know, and ultimately the, the platform's not a big deal. Like if you're building an observability or a monitoring platform, you can just build it in the cloud these days, something that you couldn't do 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And you can just send the data over the network and, and send it off to the cloud and you can scale up using Kubernetes. And so, we know that those sorts of platforms actually that aren't hard to build now. They were. But the question and the other question I have is, aside from the reliability and where does it get installed and if it goes on the router, when was the last time Netgear allowed you to install something on one of the, you know, those consumer grade routers? But right. then how many users understand this? 
most people can barely understand the fact that, you know, oh, the internet's not working, but they don't blame Wi-Fi, DNS, uplinks, you know, it's just the whole thing's not working. You know, how do we suddenly start teaching customers or consumers that there's value in understanding all of this. I, okay, so let me <laughs> let me clarify then. That's the the point is that the consumer doesn't have to know anything about it. They get the router from the ISP. The router mm-hmm. has this agent on it. It's collecting information. And when the consumer who doesn't know anything calls up and says, "My internet stinks," the ISP tech can go to this dashboard that Vigo provides and say and look specifically at the router and be like, "Oh, it looks like you know your laptop is too far mm-hmm. away from the access point. Can you just move the location of the laptop or move the access point?" And see if that works, or you okay. know, you're so it's not it's supposed to cut the consumer out of it, the picture entirely, and just make it easier for the ISP techs to respond to. I've got the vision of some sort of Karen or Ken going, "Why do I have to do that? It's your fault, right?" And I was, you you should bring the router closer to my laptop because my chair is here, not over there. <laughs> but that's that's another problem. That yeah, I don't think yeah. Vigo can do anything. Anyway, with that. <laughs> I, I don't know. I. It's it's a good idea, and it's one that's going to sell to executives. But I, I just feel that there's a gap here until consumers start to understand what they're using. It's a bit like cars. In the you know, do customers really want to know, know how their car works? Do they know want to know how engines work to be able to drive them? I'm not 100 sure with the internet that people feel that there's a need to make the effort. But yes, if you could put this into the network and get it fitted into the routers and the help desk was able to look at this, but then you're going to charge more per user and telcos are notoriously sensitive to anybody taking a slice of their money. Of course, but I guess their pitches. So, you know, one of the common responses to my Wi-Fi doesn't work is for the ISP to roll a truck and, and give you a new router mm. when the router's fine. So if they don't have to do yeah. that anymore, they could conceivably save money and make Vigo's cut, you know, disappear into yeah. that Yeah, if you can cut operations cost, you're cutting out a significant part. So, yeah. but that's a fairly, that's a thin line, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I like the idea. Yeah. I think uh, chasing mm. ISPs, uh, I don't know, we'll see, but, you know, interesting idea. I want yeah. this to be a success, right? <laughs> <laughs> Observability and information means just means people's internet gets better and the telco might suddenly realize how bad their network is. <laughs> But, you know, <laughs> it's a good idea. It's a good idea. I hope idea. they succeed. I really Tough do. Tough audience. Yep. Good idea. Tough audience. Mm. Yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, the startup Alaria has launched to provide global networking using free space optics. Alaria is a spin-out from Google's lab of long-shot projects. The company's two key offerings are SpaceTime, which is software for, quote, orchestrating networks of ground stations, aircraft, satellites, ships, and urban meshes as well as a terrestrial and airborne free space optic nodes that use laser light to transmit communication signals. So many buzzwords in there, and you missed the key one. Did you, uh, the one I read said it's a space time product, temporal spatial software defined network, network <laughs> orchestration software platform. Did you get all that? I, I, mean, I probably glazed <laughs> over as I was. <laughs> it took a lot of buzzwords and ran them through a grinder to come up with that temporal, one. Um, temporal, wow, temporal, wow. Yes. Temporal, um, yeah. I, I think there's a background here. I mean, Google's made several announcements over the last few weeks about closing down you know, what they used to call moonshots. Mm-hmm. And there's a real sort of process inside of Google to sort of start saying, we need to be more efficient. And I think you're you're seeing the point now where Google's starting to realize that it needs to grow up as a company as the market turns down. And I mean, we're seeing share prices in the US drop for in tech stocks from between 20 to 80%. And Google's been affected by that. So there's pressure on stuff. I mean, they even made an announcement this week that Google employees are not working hard enough, Drew. <laughs> They're not working hard enough and they're very concerned about it, completely ignoring the fact that it's their fault for not noticing that that's happened before now. But no, you know, whatever, right? You know, so um, 
And as I read another article, which sort of pointed out that if you're going to say things like um, your your employees aren't working hard enough, and then you look around and realize that actually, when was the last time Google did something new? Uh-huh. When did they? And and when normally what we see is Google just shuts down something and just goes like, yeah, yeah, we're finished with that. It'll close out in a year. Good luck. Bye. Whatever. I don't care how much of it. So the idea of spinning something out from Google is kind of odd, don't you think? It just feels unusual. Well, my understanding is that Alaria is uh, resurrecting some technology from an earlier Google venture called Loon. I think we talked about it mm. many, many shows ago. It proposed using balloon-based lasers to provide connectivity in remote and underserved locations. So uh, they they had this stuff kind of sitting around. They thought, let's spin it out, uh, throw out a few million dollars, and let's see if we can make something out of it. Yeah. Let, let somebody else try to make something out of it. <laughs> So basically, it's a software-defined network platform or an orchestration platform when your nodes are moving around in space. Now, mm-hmm. that can mean in the atmosphere. That can mean literally in space. So instead of your routers being physically located on the ground somewhere in a fixed location, space-time means that not only are you trying to route packets by you know known characteristics for a fixed network, you're actually trying to move packets around a temporal network. That is, it changes over time. That's what temporal means. And it could be ground stations, aircraft, satellite, ships, could be drones. We've seen people do it there. The original idea was that balloons uh, would be flown and then the balloons would know where each other are and then they'd point lasers at each other and then be able to forward you know, uh, infrared lasers and then forward packets over those links. So it sounds like they've solved a lot of fairly gnarly problems technically. Like that's a lot, there's a lot of math in there to be able to, you know, where am I in the space and time? And can I aim a laser at you to send you data to forward in the, approximately the right direction. There's a lot of physics too, because those lasers have to align with each other. There can be interference from, you know, moisture in the atmosphere, clouds, trees, hills, whatever. So mm. there, yeah, there's a, there's a math and physics involved. It's a significant undertaking, but it is yeah. kind of cool too. I imagine it's probably the super coolest technology you've ever seen. Now, the question is, how many dynamic network infrastructures do we actually have that change in time, that is, reconfigure distance-wise, spectrally, so, you know, in the radio spectrum, or if you're using optic links like laser optic links, what they change over time according to weather and humidity and, you know, distance and stuff. Right. So how much of that is actually out there? Is the world... You know, this is another one of those, is the world ready for it sort of things. There is a lot of it going on. Look at Starlink. That's there. You know, maybe they want to use this technology to help them route packets, or maybe they're developing their own, Um, or maybe there's somebody else out there like OneWeb that wants to use this technology to build a competitive, uh, you know, space mesh, space network mesh that could use this instead. I don't know. Yeah. Well, links in the show notes if you want to find out. We're going to continue with space networking. Microsoft has announced a private preview of Azure Orbital Cloud Access. It's using Starlink satellite networks to let remote sites connect to Azure Cloud Services. The private preview is currently only available to Microsoft's government customers. And I have to say, Azure Orbital Cloud Access is a pretty cool sounding service. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds a bit James Bond or... It does. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the orbital cloud access, Ah, you know, more like a Kingsman then maybe. This is where we have the networks outside, particularly space networks in this case, and they're linking Starlink satellite network directly down to Azure Cloud. Now, if you're connecting from the edge and then you're going to host it in the center. Let's say you're going to use your own on-prem data center. How do you get data from the Starlink network into your data center? Well, you're going to have to come down, find an interconnect, and so forth. Whereas if you put it directly into Azure, they're saying that they've got a direct connection to the Starlink network in the same way that AWS put up uh, space dishes a while back. Remember we talked about that? That's three or four years ago, though. Right. Um, They built satellite direct connects for exactly this reason, so that people could put all the data directly into their network 
in theory, faster Uru and better Uru. Uh, so it's interesting to see that this is sort of Microsoft's getting in front of Starlink to be able to do that. Um, and this is a unique case where if I'm Starlink, I'm only going to build a certain number of downlinks. And companies like Azure and Google, the big enough, the at-scale cloud providers are certainly one of the first companies I'm going to do that with. Because, And I think it'll be a few years before SpaceX will want to be able to you know, interconnect their network directly to your private data center. It will happen, but it'll be a while down the pipe because they're struggling for cash and they're really focused on building their network, not optimizing the network at this point. Right. Yeah. So the service, the idea is basically you're using one of Azure's edge devices. So these are these, um, you know, small conglomerations of compute storage, a little bit of networking. You plug it into uh, a satellite dish and then you can get connectivity from that edge device into the cloud. So if you're in a remote location that doesn't have a lot of connectivity, but you still need to do some computing, uh, that's mm. the idea here. Yeah. If you're building a brand new IoT platform today and you're going to back all data somewhere <laughs> and you're going to use space networking to do it. And I think also in the light of um, the uh, space networking that was done with uh, iPhones this week, Apple announced, as we predicted last week, that they were going to announce an emergency network directly from an iPhone up. Well, if you start thinking about IoT devices using low bandwidth connections that can use this satellite networking over like uh, SMS type grade stuff that they mm -hmm. can reach satellites. Now, all of a sudden, you've got IoT networks that are a lot more competitive, a lot more useful. To, they don't necessarily have to connect, say, over LoRa or NB, NBIoT or, or LPWAN to a telco tower. And then, of course, if you're building a global network of these things, you have to negotiate with every telco everywhere in the world. A lot easier just to fire it up at a satellite and get a low rate, you know, a few hundred kilobits per second of data that you can send off to Azure. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, Big also, market, potential market. Potential, yeah. yeah. I also noticed in the press release that they are announcing uh, integration with Juniper SD-WAN. Uh, Juniper's SD-WAN comes from 128 Technology, which Juniper acquired. And I remember oh. some briefings from 128 Tech. And one of the things they always talked about was their ability to operate in bandwidth-constrained environments. That's something they specialized in. So this does make sense for that application. Yeah, and not a lot of SD-WAN solutions are working in the one in the bandwidth-constrained or low speed. They abandon it and just assume that all, the, and rightly so, I think. But 128T, and I think the other one was Silver Peak, which is now Aruba's SD-WAN. Uh -huh. uh, which also got a big mention this week in the uh, one of the analysts companies gave it a sparkling you know whatever <laughs> report for being best of sparkling but magic wand. Think, yeah yeah sparkling magic magic cube or something um i actually think the 128t or the juniper sd-wan that that version of juniper sd-wan as well as the aruba ones are probably the leading market ones technologically at the moment they've got features that that other people just don't have and they just never will because they're just focused on different problems they're built on selling it not making it a good product Right. We don't hear a lot about Juniper SD-WAN, so I think it's, for them, nice to get this little mm -hmm. uh, pat on the back from Microsoft for this. Anything associated yeah. with a Starlink gets that cool factor. Hard to get Microsoft's attention, too, so it's a, that's right. a win for them. <laughs> it is a win for them. <laughs> All right, that wraps up our news. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation with Ruben Networks talking about Wi-Fi 6E. That's coming right up.
Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking about Wi-Fi 6E. And as you may know, 6E gear can take advantage of the recent addition of unlicensed spectrum in the 6 gigahertz band, but that 6 gigahertz band isn't a free-for-all. There are also incumbent entities that also have a stake in the spectrum. So to prevent interference, there's an effort known as the Automated Frequency Coordination Database, or AFC. It coordinates among licensed and unlicensed users. So on today's podcast, which is sponsored by Aruba, a Hewlett Packard Enterprises company, we're going to hear about Aruba's participation in the first public demonstration of Wi-Fi. 6E and the AFC database. My guest is Dave Wright, head of global wireless policy at Aruba. Uh, Dave, welcome to the podcast. So first, you know, what are the issues with this six gigahertz band? I thought when the FCC opened it up, it was a big swath of unlicensed spectrum. What's the catch? Yeah, thanks, Drew. Uh, thanks for having me. And and absolutely, I mean, this is the most significant allocation of mid-band unlicensed spectrum that we've had in 20 years, um, 1,200 megahertz of spectrum, 59.25 to 71.25 megahertz. But it did come with strings attached. I mean, there there is no, you know, pristine, green-filled, unoccupied spectrum. Spectrum is a uh, highly sought-after commodity in our, you know, increasingly wireless world. So um, it's all occupied. So so the the you know the value proposition, if you will, that we brought to the FCC and that we're now bringing to regulators around the world was that unlicensed operations, including Wi-Fi and Wi-Fi 6E, um, in the six gigahertz band would you know, work around and protect the existing incumbent services that you mentioned. Um, and there's a variety of different incumbent operations uh, in the six gigahertz band in those frequency ranges I mentioned, everything from fixed microwave services, um, point to point typically, mm -hmm. uh, to satellite. There's some uh, satellite uh, stations there as well. Um, there's some mobile uh, incumbent services, which are actually a little bit more challenging to protect. So mm -hmm. some things around broadcast auxiliary services, auxiliary relay services, um, and what what you'll notice, like in the U.S., we have four different subbands within the broader six gigahertz band: um, Uni five, Uni six, Uni seven, and Uni eight. Uh, those are the the four subbands, if you will, um, and they each have slightly different characteristics based on the incumbents that operate there. The automated frequency coordination that we're really here to talk about in the demonstration that we did, that is specific to what we call the standard power mode of operation in Wi-Fi 6E, which allows outdoor operations, it allows higher power operations, connectorized antennas. There are two other modes in addition to standard power. There's what's called low power indoor mode, and that's what is available really in the U.S. today and, and in a number of other countries today. Um, and as it, as it you know, sort of uh, self-describes itself, it's uh, indoors only and it's at lower power. Uh, in the U.S., it's at you know, 5 dBm per megahertz, which translates to you know uh, about 250 milliwatts in an 80 megahertz wide channel. So not not you know super high power and indoor only. So um, that's the LPI mode. And then there's another mode called very low power or VLP. P, um, which, uh, you know, as, as the name again implies, is at such low power levels, like 25 milliwatts of EIRP, that, um, you know, there's virtually no chance that it would interfere um, with the incumbent services. But that's only really good for personal area, you know, personal hotspots, right, okay. you know, mm -hmm. AR, VR headsets, that sort of thing, maybe in vehicle. Um, but, but standard powers are going to require this AFC capability, the automated frequency coordination. Okay, so I'm assuming automated frequency coordination database is just what it sounds, a database of, uh, you know, frequencies that are available or not available and folks are supposed to coordinate around it. Is that the idea? 
It's actually a little bit more sophisticated than just a, a database. <laughs> it's not just an Excel sheet that the FCC it's is keeping. Not, it, yeah, no, it's yeah. That, that, but actually, what we're really doing is we're advancing the the you know, state of the art or the state of the possible with spectrum management. Um, and this is the sort of world that I live in, doing spectrum policy. You know, really everything that we know today, you know, in, with cellular connectivity and with Wi-Fi connectivity, Bluetooth, um, and and really everything else is based on this sort of longstanding notion that you either license spectrum and sell it at an FCC auction for billions of dollars and it becomes sort of the exclusive domain of well-moneyed um, you know, <laughs> entities like the mobile operators, um, or you sort of just make it available, unlicensed, free for all, no interference protections, but you know, easy, no barriers to access, everybody right. can can utilize it. And so that's what we've had up until till now. And and what we're starting to see with um, first the citizens broadband radio service or CBRS and the uh, three and a half gig um, band. And now with six gigahertz AFC is that we're, we're really introducing, you know, databases um, that have awareness, ge you know, geolocation awareness, um, spectrum awareness, incumbent operation awareness. And so, you know, given that if a radio comes up and speaks to one or communicates with one of these databases, it can say, Hey, I'm a Wi-Fi, you know, six E access point. I want to operate in standard power mode. I'm at this location. Um, tell me what frequencies I can use and mm -hmm. what power levels I can use mm -hmm. without creating interference um, to an incumbent. And so that's what AFC is. It's to, I, I compare it a lot to DHCP um, in the IP addressing space. Yep. Um, and I, I can remember as a network administrator, my, my spreadsheets <laughs> of, you know, going back to your point, I can remember <laughs> maintaining spreadsheets of IP addresses. Every time you assigned a host, you put it in your spreadsheet. And, you know, when you gave two, two nodes the same IP, bad things happened. Um, and then all of a sudden DHCP came along and it changed the world overnight. I'm, I'm guessing this is not, though, managed by individual uh, YLAN operators. I'm probably <laughs> assuming that, you know, Aruba yeah. Central, which is managing the, the APs, has some access to a centralized database that it's checking to make sure this AP in this location can use these frequencies at, the, at these power levels. Good point. Yeah, uh, this is not something that, you know, the AFC service is not something that, you know, an individual network administrator, IT department, um, you know, would run. Uh, so that is a good distinction with DHCP. Now, um, so in the U.S., the uh, FCC solicited proposals from companies that would like to provide these um, AFC services, and they got four, 14 applications. Um, this was uh, end of last year. Um, so December 21, they'd receive 14 applications and it's a bit of a who's who of people um, and, you know, companies and organizations in the space. So, you know, Google um, was there, Broadcom, Qualcomm, uh, Wi-Fi Alliance submitted a proposal. And then there were some uh, companies that really specialize in this, uh, you know, spectrum management uh, database realm, if you will. So Federated Wireless, who's uh, Aruba's partner for AFC services, Red Technologies, um, uh, Comscope, Comsearch, companies like that. Okay. Uh, so this August, uh, I understand Aruba actually participated in a public trial using 6E APs and the uh, Automated Frequency Coordinate Database. Can you talk a little bit about that? What, what were you looking to do? How did the trial work? Yeah, uh, thanks, Drew. Yeah, so um, this was the world's first demonstration of um, an AFC system, uh, again, operated by our partner, Federated Wireless. 
actually coordinating spectrum access uh, that was being used in real time by Wi-Fi 6E APs from Aruba. Um, and, you know, the, the work, the industry work to sort of operationalize all of this began really right after the FCC released its six gigahertz report in order, which was back in April of 2020. So almost two and a half years ago. So we've been working, we've been hard at work on this in groups like Wi-Fi Alliance and Wind Forum. We've come up with like the, you know, protocol that, that runs between the um, access points or the controller. Uh, and the AFC, um, you know, we've come up with all the different requirements. Uh, and, you know, so industry has been hard at work on this, has come out with a, a lot of, you know, uh, deliverables um, to make this all work. And we were the first people um, to actually implement it and demonstrate it um, in a live setting. So we, um, you know, uh, CITC, which is the Saudi Arabian um, spectrum regulator, uh, had reached out to us and was interested in doing a demonstration showing that they want to be on the leading edge of this database coordinated spectrum access as well. Um, and so we brought over some of our AP655s, which are our um, you know, flagship 6E uh, product. Uh, worked with Federated on you know, the AFC implementation again, and we demonstrated you know four of these APs passing um, almost six gigabits of aggregate traffic um, using higher than uh, well, this essentially standard power mode operation. So we were operating above what would be permitted in the LPI mode, low power indoor mode um, in Saudi Arabia uh, as allowed or as authorized, if you will, by the uh, AFC uh, database from Federated. Um, there was a number of uh, fixed microwave incumbents that uh, uh, that CITC had given us the information about, um, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the Riyadh area. So in close proximity to where we were doing this demonstration. So you're doing the demo in an environment where there could potentially be interference uh, exactly. in this six gigahertz band, yeah. Exactly. And, and, and then we were showing how, you know, if you looked across the band, um, uh, how, uh, you know, certain portions of it, we had to operate at lower powers or, or we, we just avoided those areas uh, or those frequency ranges because mm -hmm. uh, of the incumbent operations. But this was all, again, you know, coordinated, uh, you know, by both the AFC system, Aruba Central and the APs themselves. Okay, so let's bring in the Aruba Central part because I mentioned earlier and you mentioned earlier, this isn't something you'd want to necessarily do with an Excel spreadsheet. It sounds like you need some <laughs> kind of centralized management to actually, you know, for the radios to be able to perform in the right spectrum at the right power levels. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so uh, that, that's kind of the fun part of this um, is, you know, we're, we're going to have a whole bunch of new tools and new UIs that um, people will, will get a chance to to familiarize themselves. So, you know, when you go in and you are, are looking, you know, in Aruba Central at six gigahertz standard power operation, you'll see sort of channels, you know, the, the channel raster uh, of 20 megahertz, 40 megahertz, 80 megahertz, 160 megahertz wide channels. Um, and then you'll see, you know, uh, like if you're in the U.S., it's the Uni 5 and the Uni 7 subbands are available for standard power. So you'd see those sort of as, as available channels. Mm -hmm. And then you'd see as the queries go up to the federated AFC, you'll see what comes back with some coding around essentially, you know, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just, yeah, this isn't how it's going to look, but just as, so to give people some idea of, you know, 
uh, at least the thinking uh, conceptually, you know, it's sort of like red, yellow, green, right? So if it's green, it's, you know, hey, good, go, full power, et cetera. Mm -hmm. If it's mm -hmm. yellow, maybe there's some power constraints on it. And if it's red, it's just, you know, uh, that that's probably not a channel you want to utilize. So there'll be new, you know, new tools, new interfaces to help people understand, you know, all the interactions that are going on between the radio, the AFC, and again, the incumbent operations informing all of that. So are there actual regulations around uh, the automated frequency coordination database that I, as a, you know, as I'm deploying uh, a wireless deployment that I would need to be aware of? Or is this just sort of, we're trying to be good neighbors with other folks who may have licensed a portion of the spectrum? Yeah, I would say as an end user, as a customer, what's going to be important to you is sort of, you know, what 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 is available to me at this location, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I would want to be able to go and again, you know, be, because we've been working with Federated now for, uh, well, we've been working with them for a number of years and we announced uh, our partnership with them um, about a year ago, it was October of 21. Um, because we've been working with them for so long, we've developed a number of tools that, you know, we, we were sort of using for advocacy purposes and some of our uh, early planning um, where you can, you know, you can put in a location, here's my lab, my long, and, you know, it'll essentially show you what your, your channel availability uh, for standard power operation would look like, you know, what power levels you could operate, et cetera. Um, so I think that's the kind of information as an end user they're going to be ultimately interested in. I mean, they don't need to know that, you know, <laughs> the AFC is, you know, doing free, free space path loss from zero to 30 meters and then winter two from 30 meters to a kilometer and then ITM propagate. This is the propagation modeling, right? So, I mean, there's all this stuff, there's terrain databases, there's assumptions about building entry losses. I mean, so the AFCs are, yeah, and yeah, so those those are, uh, things are all stipulated in the rules and the AFCs, um, you know, account for them. But, uh, you know, that's probably uh, far beyond what most uh, customers are going to care about. It sounds like what I'm hearing then is if I'm going out and doing a site <laughs> survey, I will get data back saying, informing me about placement and options, and I don't have to worry so much about <laughs> the excruciating level of detail on the back end. Exactly. Yeah, I think, you know, again, I can't speak for all the AFC operators, but the way Federated is approaching it, they're going to have some real nice um, outputs that, that that make it easier for the customer to understand what, what power availability, or frequency and power availability looks like in, in location, depending on whether you're indoors or outdoors, by the way. So, I was going to ask, are there, you know, just sort of uh, general rules about where I might run into this issue? Is it, you know, uh, by industry, by location, by you mm. know, what kind of services I might be near? Yeah, it, it, it's it, that's a good question, Drew. And, um, you know, it, it, a lot of it's sort of geographic. There tends to be and, and, and also some industry specific um, mm -hmm. locations. So I'm thinking, you know, parts of Texas, for whatever reason, the um, you know, the, the petro industry has uh, you know, deployed a good amount of um, fixed wireless microwave sure. uh, links. Yep. And, um, so. you know, some, some mobile operators use it for cell site backhaul as well. So, you know, if you get into some of the, you know, urban downtown areas, you'll see that, you know, for outdoor standard power, yeah, there'll probably be some some frequencies that are that are you know constrained or or just aren't aren't available. Um, you know, you get uh, to other parts of the country and you know, even the East West coasts. It's it, it looks much different. And then certainly you know uh, suburban and rural areas. Um, I've seen you know I, 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 you know you may have one or two sort of really long shot 
microwave links that happen to pass through an area, but but it tends to be that it, it's more the metropolitan areas where you see the impacts. Well, that wraps up our time. I feel like, Dave, we probably could have talked an hour about this, but we only have a short time. So if folks want to go uh, find out more for themselves, where should they go? Yeah, uh, please always go to uh, arubanetworks.com, um, our primary website. And then, uh, Drew, if we could, I'd love to post a couple of links in the show notes uh, to some recent blogs talking about the CITC demo, talking about AFC and standard power, and then uh, just this whole transition to dynamic spectrum access with these uh, databases. Uh, absolutely. We'll make sure the links to those blogs go in the show notes that accompany this podcast. So just uh, head on over to packetpushers.net to, to search for those uh, links in the show notes that are on the show. Uh, Dave, thank you for being a guest. Uh, thanks to Aruba for being a sponsor. And thanks to you for being a listener. If you like this episode, you can find many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.